0: Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 349th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's ready for Elon to buy us out and burn it all down while we dance in the ashes of his dignity. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co host is Derek the Dark Mage at OkoAssassin on Twitter. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering.
0: Good evening, everyone. As we record, it is election night in the United States. So thank you for giving me a break from the talking heads on TV for a couple hours of sanity. Before we jump in, I want to remind listeners that this show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read some of the best uh, articles from some of the best financial minds in the hobby.
1: MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code Finance Five—that's the number five—during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save five percent off your order and support this podcast. Derek, what is on our agenda this week?
0: Well, James, we have our traditional four segments again this week. We're going to kick things off with our MTGO metagame weekend review. After that, we are going to talk in segment two about our movers, uh, top movers of the week, and discuss why we think these we, these cards saw significant gains. Third, we're going to move on to segment three, our cards to watch, where you and I share key insights into the cards we have our eyes on at the moment. And finally, wrapping things up, we're going to talk about segment four, our topics of the week, which this week we are going to dive into whether or not we think Magic 30th edition is uh, implications on the reserve list and some of the pricing talk
1: we've heard on Twitter in recent weeks. Sounds good to me. We can jump on over here to the MTGO metagame week in review, starting off with the Modern Challenge from November 5th this past Saturday. Pretty standard stuff here. We have Creativity Combo, taking it all down in first Omnath elementals a 60 card version in second shardless footfalls in third green tron in sixth and some pretty spicy lists with in the rest of this top eight we'll kick it off with the fourth place list which is a tron list nothing too you know odd about that in modern but this particular list is brown tron yeah this list
0: i i played it a little bit this weekend it was it was pretty good um so it it's very much a prison deck even though it runs tron tron is a necessity for the deck to work and essentially what you're trying to do is like any prison list lock out your opponent gain control of the game and then eventually win through either um a big walking ballista or uh putting out you know enough card constructs through urza saga and then getting rid of your in Stary bridges, for example, and then swinging in for the win—it is very much fun. It's great to frustrate your opponents. If, if you don't know, I'm a big Tron fan, and I'm actually rebuilding my uh, traditional Tron deck right now next to me. So I enjoyed it. It was a uh, it was a good win. It had it seemed to have some good matchups and some bad matchups, uh, as any Prisonless does. So I found it to be good against. Um, some of the value decks that uh, didn't have a lot of interaction but laid a lot of creatures out on the board, but things like uh, just value town where they're able to you know, continually bounce their creatures, which in turn uh, you know, provide effects like bouncing your ensnaring bridges and things like that, were very difficult matchups. Uh, similarly, a lot of counter spells uh, could create a
1: challenge you know, depending on what the type of build was fascinating to see you know a list that has elements from the sam black and company ensnaring bridge decks um, that relied on all those weird little one mana artifacts a few years back and mixing that with traditional tron elements to go over the top we've also in fifth place here got a jun sacrifice list which uh, is not something you see all that often in modern, despite it doing pretty well in Pioneer pretty consistently. This is four Witches' Oven, a Springleaf Drum, four Mishra's Bobble, four Ragavan, two Croxa, four Ravenous Squirrel, and four Mayhem Devil with four Cauldron Familiar. So the full four Witches' Oven, four Cauldron Familiar in modern. Uh, two Lightning Bolt, three Grist, the Hunger Tide, two Obnixilus, the Adversary, and three Thoughtseize.
0: Yeah. I love seeing Obnixilus. I need to uh, get my etched foils a little bit of value there, (laughs) which I I definitely bought in way too early on. Uh, Yeah, Griston in this deck is interesting. I wouldn't have expected that, but I like it. Nice to see that scene a little bit more play, obviously. This seems like a deck that we could maybe see the new uh, Modern Legal Tutor come into play a little bit if it continued to survive. Yeah,
1: Diabolic Intent. Yeah, Uh, so we have black red goblins in seventh putting up uh, an unusual posting in the top eight. And then this last this eighth place list at first glance, you might think, oh, that's hammer time. No, there's no hammers in here. This is blue white Urza. With three Urza Lord High Artificer, four Ingenious Smith, three Memnite, four Thought Monitor, four Esper Sentinel, three Metallic Rebuke, and a Dispatch. Alongside one Teferi Time Raveler, three Thought Cast, three Springleaf Drum, four Portable Hole, one Shadow Spear, two Talisman of Progress, one Nettlecyst, one of Progenitus, and one Ether Spellbomb. So it's got the, like, eight Thought package tweaked a little bit, yeah?
0: Yeah, I, I, it's interesting they did three Thought Cast. I really want to know what the thought process was there of saying you know we don't
1: want the full four we're gonna go with three thought casts uh, especially in a deck where they're <laughs> but, ramping on two mana artifacts they have two slots dedicated right? to talisman of progress but yeah
0: this seems i mean it's much more valuey it's i think probably a lot slower than hammer time uh but between urza saga and urza lord high arvis viscer and having some counter back play i'm sure you can definitely get the job done but it is it's it seems to be more value. You know, you're getting out some creatures, you're equipping them, you're swinging in while holding back your opponent a little bit here and there. Um, sideboard, it's it's a lot of the same too. I mean, there's some prevention with meddling mage, um, Hollowed moonlight for the creativity lists and some of these others, but otherwise it's just good good value cards. Doesn't have like a big change up plan in the, after sideboard or anything. So you're running out constructs and you're and art and equipment and smashing and face. We'll draw in some cards. On over
1: in the Pioneer Challenge from this past Sunday, November 6th, we've got the Teferi-flavored Mono Green list in first, Blue-Red Light Phoenix in second, uh, alongside Ledger Shredder, of course. The Sacrifice deck that the modern build is patterned after, after also finished in this top eight in third. Uh, I think I also want to game with it in the... I mean, I basically play this deck under the core of old banner in our EDH group think i messed up the win but it was it was pretty dominating up until that point four color omnath in fourth here so this is kind of like whereas the sacrifice deck was migrating to modern this is the omnath deck migrating into pioneer and indeed they're running karuga both in the main and in the board because it's one of the the companions you can do that with, unlike, say, Lurus where you have to have all of your permanents to cast and cost or less, so you could never double up on your Luruses in the main. Uh, you can certainly do that with Karuga. Uh, mono green in fifth, blue-white control in sixth, blue-red Light again in eighth, and then the probably the most interesting list in the Pioneer Challenge was this mono-black v- zombies I've got down here, but it's really zombies and vampires Uh Cards I don't remember ever seeing in this format. We've got two Lazotep Reaver out of War of the Spark, I believe, um, alongside an Unlicensed Hearst, four Cryptbreaker, three Shieldred, kind of automatic and mono black for Standard and Pioneer right now, four Shambling Ghast, two Kalidus, four Fatal Push, four Deadly Dispute. For Immutavolt, a Hive of the Eye Tyrant, Takanoma, to Urborg, for Castle Lockwing, 11 Swamps, for Liliana of the Veil, vale and Agadim's Awakening, for Dark Salvation, and for Thoughtseize. Dark Salvation, not a card I have seen before in Pioneer. So I read it twice, and I still don't
0: really get why it's in the stack. I mean, it, it does things, but it's
1: not good, right? <laughs> it kills a creature on their side, and makes you two or three zombies. That's that's all I got. That's all I got for you.
0: It doesn't. I mean, there's not really a huge payoff for the big zombie horde. I mean, you're you're tapping Crypt Baker and drawing cards. Yeah, uh, this deck. I don't. It seems a little wild. It just seems like really good high end black threats with Shieldred Lily, good Dotsies effect, and then your flex. Crip 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 your Baker flex slots are basically a zombie theme. Our zombie theme with Lazzoplet Briefer, as you said, is, which is just trash. That card is... That can't be good. <laughs> <laughs> got, I was just
1: like, there's got to be a better zombie, right? Like, right? this is a 1-2 yeah. two for 2. When it enters the battlefield, you amass 1. So you either make a 1-1. One, one. You get a 1-2 and a 1-1 one, one for 2. Or you get a 2-3 if you've already done it before. <laughs> it does. Okay. I mean, I guess you just need whatever to power up the crit breaker, but... Right. So I guess, yeah, you play a Crypt Breaker, you play the Lazatep Reaver,
0: and then immediately draw a card, and then you're positive EV, and then just keep doing that over and over again, I guess. I mean, there's a
1: bunch of cards in here I will f- we will for sure see in black and black red, and Jund lists in Pioneer for ages, I'm sure. You've got your Kalidus, your uh, Shieldred, you've got Unlicensed hers Fatal Push, Deadly Dispute, Lineon of the Veil. These are all very, very strong cards, these? The rest of this i'd be very surprised if this is this becomes the default shell even in this color
0: yeah it's impressive though 23 land only 11 swamps that's a lot of utility lands between mutivolts four full mutivolts four full castle lock plus a couple of Erborg's and the others i mean that's
1: yeah they're er, they're urborg Erborg is doing a lot of work there
0: yeah, well, the only thing
1: that taps for colorless is Mutavolt. Yep. Everything else already taps for black. True, yep. They do have a, a, a good a, good access to Swamps Plus. On over to segment two, top paper movers. Soren the mirthless double uh, feature edition 12 to 14. Not huge gains, but just one of many double feature cards that keeps coming up on the stats list um, as key cards from that set steadily drain in the face of relatively low supply compared to other sets. Bio Transference out of the 40k decks that just came out, up 25% itself, eight to ten dollars on strong EDH play. It's been featured in some Command Zone videos lately. Dandan Dan out of Arabi- uh, Arabian Nights, ten to twelve dollars. We've seen this yo-yo a bit on the back of this new Dandan Dan named format, where you have to have Dandans to table it like you would a cube product, and you know, I, I have no idea what kind of staying power this will have, but I would imagine these original copies from *Arabian Nights*. You know, if the format catches a little a little heat over the next year or two, then these are probably a pretty safe bet. I I
0: don't think I had actually heard of that before,
1: so I'm learning new things here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I certainly pulled mine out to just have them on on my like watch. I have a little box of like cars on watch where I'm not quite ready to sell them yet, but they you know, you don't want to miss the boat (laughs) if it's a flash in the pan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Savitri Dragon Master, uh, foil etched out of Dominaria United, $4 to $6, 50% gains there. Uh, That's almost certainly on the back of Ur-Dragon being in the top five, top 10 commanders pretty much most of the year. Preeminent Captain out of Morning Tide, foils from $5 to $9. That's up 80% on the back of Soldier's Hype from the Soldier's-related cards in both the 40 k set and uh brothers war we've got smash the smithereens the original original foils from shadowmoor 450 to nine that's 100 percent gains there uh, prince of thralls out of uh, shards of alara 45 to 95 that's going to be Bellacore hype i you know if you can get anything in between those two price points by all means jump ship there's It's unlikely you have this foil sitting around, but if you do, you definitely want to be selling it now while people are building Bellacore, because you will probably never get another chance.
0: Yep, and they're probably not near mint anyway, so you're not getting that price, most likely, but get what you can, get out.
1: Field Marshal at a cold snap, another Soldier's card, uh, getting moved on hype, 7 to 17. Ethermage's Touch was featured in an aspiring Spike Esper Modern Brew over the last week, and the Dissension foils went 250-12, to uh, 380% gains there. I just opened a Japanese foil version of that and was disappointed in my Double Masters 2022 pack shortly before cast. Uh, So you certainly want to take advantage of any hype on Ethermage's Touch because it has been a dead card for a long time. Yep, six printings, so not all in foil, obviously. And then heading up this list, Complaints Clerk as a stand in for all the Gal- Galaxy foils of mediocre to bad cards in this set. Any of them that are showing up on EDH Rec stats in the top 20 played cards from that set are getting targeted. This one from like a dollar up to 14. Uh, Galaxy foil rares and, and so forth are not easy to pull. There isn't that much of this set being cracked. And so people are figuring they can squeeze in, get some cheap ones at a dollar or two, and if one or two of them pays off down the road, it'll justify the action. Personally, I'm staying away from most of that, but I will talk about one of the Galaxy Foils a little further down the road here. You want to walk us through uh, the top Magic Online movers of the week?
0: Yeah, Magic Online's been pretty calm uh, over the last week, but did have some uh, significant changes, one of which was Urza Saga, which went both up and then back down. It went from 47, which is where it's been hovering, between 40 to 47 lately, all the way to 70 this weekend in advance of the weekend tournaments and bro hype and then immediately crashed back down within a day or two back to 47. So I thought it was a pretty good example of how different the magic online economy is and how, if you're paying attention, you can really take advantage of some of these things. And if you're not, you can really lose your shirt if you're buying in at the wrong time. Uh, others, one, we, one you've talked about several times that's taking off, I think is a real um, strong pioneer sideboard card is temporary lockdown. This is the two white, one colorless, uh, Enchantment that takes away all low converted mana cost permanents uh, until it's removed from play. And it's seen just a ton of sideboard play as kind of a counter to aggressive decks. Uh, I saw one tweet recently where somebody had three of them, each of which was taking away two or three permanents. Uh, And so they just had wiped their whole board over three different cards. And it's doing work. So this moved from about one to close to three tickets um, for about 150% gain. And this is one where you could have gotten in really cheap. And, you know, if you recognize the potency of the card, uh, been able to stock up, I think at its low, it was, I'm looking at the charts here, about 30 cents. No, it it hit 15 cents in October. Uh, So not just a couple weeks ago. Um, So these are the type of things where it might even keep going. Um, We've seen some of these white cards like uh, wedding announcement and others go up to close to 10 tickets. Uh, So there's still potential room for this to grow. But either way, if you got in at 0.5 or 0.15, and now it's at uh, 2, you're not doing too bad.
1: Hold up, I I have commentary on that, yeah. Yeah, my experience with that card, as we've talked about before, is that in Historic, I run it as a 3 of in the main in Esper Control. Because in that format, when you're running up the ladder, you run into non-stop low-slung creature decks. Goblins, Elves... Uh, Green White Angel, Life Gain Combo, uh, Merfolk, uh, sometimes Zombies, uh, often uh, Mono Red or Red X Aggro decks, you see the Burning Tree Emissary decks in that format, and I I have a collection of pictures uh, trying to beat my previous record of the number of permanents I have exiled with Temporary Lockdown, and they never have an answer for it, so... Yeah, I, I I'm not super surprised to see it doing work.
0: Yeah, in Pioneer it's surprisingly good, especially if you're on the play where you just snag a couple of elves yep. against the mono green deck. And granted, it doesn't get them forever, but you know that that slowdown in and of itself and taking away some of the pips from the board can do a lot of work. Uh, it's also good against the sacrifice deck, which most of the things that stick around are are very low converted mana cost. So looking at the top. Thirty-two of the pioneer challenge there was six decks each running a full four copies of temporary lockdown so seeing quite a bit of play and actually i said sideboard and realistically it's actually just moved straight into the main board uh, which has kind of been a shift there's still some sideboard action but uh, right now it's just seeing straight four of uh, main board play in a lot of these decks
1: against elves they typically want to get lanyard elf out and then drop a lord a three cast cost lord on two so if you fatal push the first War elf, they might be stuck with three drops in their hand, and maybe they have another, another one-drop elf. And then you can let that one-drop elf hit once, and by the time they get to swing with two creatures and then play a third, you can temporary lock down and take three, which really puts them on the back foot, and they've got to, they've got to outdraw you for the rest of the game and it becomes increasingly difficult so on the elves point i was specifically
0: i i agree um but additionally i was specifically referring to mono green where they're dropping um either elvish mystics or land elves to ramp into their bigger threats and oath of nissa to add pips to the board um wolf willow haven as well and so you can snake even one or two of those uh early on it could just decimate their game plan Alright, wrapping up here. So yeah, wrapping up. We have of uh, uh, I'm going to screw it up because I'm bad at pronunciations. But Vodelian. Vo- there you go. Uh, which has went from about 0. 0.4 ticks to one tick. I think this will continue to see increases because it's the uh, the Murfolk Lord that is very powerful. It's seen play both in Modern and in Legacy, and uh, I think that will just continue to grow slowly over time as uh, the Domineeri, um united set is redeemed taking copies out of supply and finally see, see, see that's
1: one of the cards that's good against temporary lockdown because you want to go for your lockdown on three against t- two merfolk and if one of them's hex catcher then you got to wait till you got four mana and because it's non-creature spell yeah exactly it's pretty good yeah and and they can they don't have to sacrifice good. that merfolk they can sacrifice any murfolk. right and then they can keep you off balance for the rest of the game by attacking with their biggest merfolk and getting rid of their smallest. So, yeah, that that can be a wrinkle in the control plan. So, these lords remind me of how much I dislike
0: the hype going into soldier specs, because here you have a lord that has flash, gives your merfolk plus one, one, plus the ability to sacrifice other merfolk, counter, non-creature spell unless they pay one. That all for two on a 1-1 one, one body and then you have the soldier lords that are mostly doing a plus 1-1 one, one effect for three. It's like it's just below rate these days, honestly.
1: Yeah, and I mean presumably the, the soldier thing is going to be more about EDH than it is about constructed formats, but yeah.
0: Oh yes, sure, but still three two mana lords feel much better than a three mana
1: lord. <laughs> uh, so, Even in EDH. So then asarak the arch lich Yeah, and this one moved from about
0: just under a dollar to almost three. I'm not really sure why. It's played in Legacy in the... um, uh, Why am I not thinking about it? Where you bounce your creatures and replay them over and over and over again, three mana or less. Allure and Dax, there go. Got it, got it. Um, So it sees some play. It's a really low supply mythic uh, in a set that is historically one of the lowest supply sets on Magical Line, so I'm assuming it's just variants, but... Uh, was a notable change. Sometimes things move without a big reason. But otherwise, Magic Online's been a little calm. I expect uh, this the new set will come out next week, and
1: that will shake things up again. Moving on over to cards to watch. Uh, I'm going to kick things off with the only Galaxy foil that's really on my radar right now. Saw in Half has been on everyone's radar in the MGG Finance community um, and EDH communities all the way back since they first revealed Infinity. I think it was this time last year, if I'm not mistaken where they gave us a teaser uh, of the set and showed this off. Because keep in mind, Infinity was supposed to come out spring of 2022, not fall. So the set is, was late to be delivered by about six months. And as a result, we knew about Sonha for the better part of a year. Everybody saw it coming. It, look, it was obviously an interesting potential combo card, value card for EDH. I'm cautiously optimistic about this uh, from its current position because it's been drifting down pretty much since release, but it doesn't have overwhelming supply. Typically with with most big cards from a recently released set, if you're looking at number of listings on TCG Player, it's going to be, depending on the overall drop rate of the card in question, you're going to see 100 to 300 listings. This one only has 62, so the set is both under-opened and these are hard to find in the set. This is a Galaxy Foil Rare. There aren't that many of them around. Cliff has a good article up on mtgprice.com detailing the math around that set to break it all down for you. But the bottom line is there are no major walls around this. However, I'm concerned that there's a lot of confusion in the player base, especially the casual player base, about Infinity and whether these cards are playable in EDH and under which circumstances. This has only showed up, even though this is the most heavily reported played card in this set on EDH rec, showing up in 1800 decks so far, 2% of all black decks. Those are pretty good stats, but they're not auto S tier staple stats. There's not 8% of all black decks since release. It's 2%. And that, the card is both a little bit more narrow than some people give it credit for. And I think it's getting lost in the shuffle a bit. And given the rest of the, the nonsense in this set, and how much of it is not playable in EDH, that might be a continuing problem. So currently you can get these at 15. I've got these marked down as a target buy price of 12, and really I'm hoping that maybe I'll get a shot at them between eight and 12, and I'm not in a huge rush. I might buy a few, like a couple this week just to get it on my like tracking sheet at 15 and then look to get an even lower as we head into the lulls around mid December, early January as people, you know, have to shift budgets around to cover Christmas gifts and holidays, travel expenses and so forth. The card's good. It's unique. You're not going to see another card like this for a long time because of the weird text, like the rules text on it. And it's a galaxy foil, which, you know, looks good when it's tabled and this does have open-ended synergy, especially with comes into play abilities and so forth on a future forward basis for EDH. So I want to own some of these. Not sure we're at the bottom, given that the price has done nothing but fall since release.
0: Yeah, I, so I agree. I think premise is great. Timing, I just don't know. And I wonder if a very casual set like this just gets underreported on EDH rec as well. Um, because it's not just this card it's all the cards that are getting very low reporting numbers relatively speaking currently so maybe that's part of it um i did look at the sales currently and there was just since the beginning of the month so eight days or so 67 galaxy foil copies did sell that's actually that's actually
1: really solid for a premium card
0: that's a that's a very solid for a premium card looking at the um, non-foil uh I should say the non-Galaxy foil. So both the regular and the regular foil, the numbers were looking similar-ish. So the premium version selling as good, if not better than the cheaper uh, non-premium version. I think that's all really good signs. It's just a matter of timing. Um, so something like this, you know, I agree. Just, you know, get in on a few. If I, I think ultimately this gets to be probably like a $20, $25 card, $25 card eventually at a minimum. So if you buy now, it's not the end of the world if it goes down more, but it gets you, like you said, on the tracking sheet so you don't miss it You know, six months from now. And then probably look even for more copies and see what the price is in maybe January or you know right around the holidays uh, and kind of finish off what you're buying in preparation for next year.
1: Yeah, my only final point on this is it has potential to be a total home run because they're never reprinting this they've never they don't generally reprint unset cards and they've only done it very very few instances and they're very unlikely to dedicate a secret layer to unset cards um, especially since i don't th- think this set sold well and there's not going to be a lot of executive level support within watsi to even touch this stuff again like i i think marrow is going to have an uphill battle next time um if 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 his pitch was, listen, I'm going to put shocks in it and it's going to sell amazing. That's not what happened. The shocks are very popular. The set is not. So, so this, could this could be the last time to the unwell. That's entirely possible.
0: Yeah. Short term. I agree on a lack of reprint. I think anything in this set is going to be very, very low priority. If this gets somewhat expensive, I think their whole point of making things black border was to make them okay and accepted so that they could, probably redeem some of that ev down the line so I, I do think it would get a reprint um in normal border somewhere potentially secret layer but that's three plus years i mean they would have to prove itself be enough of a card where they want to reprint it and then get it in a set which is usually um You're gonna yeah, take 3 going gonna take process, them some time even if yeah yeah even if they're trying to do it so i think you got plenty of time on this all right which also means again plenty of time to get in um you know take your take your time get the price right and and like i I say for everything get in deep enough where it matters
1: (laughs) all right what's your first selection this week so my first
0: selection uh so this is one that was sort of a failure and has come back to life which is what maybe look at some of the other versions which is goblin engineer um so i think many folks who listen to the cast bought goblin engineers regular copies you know right when they were coming out or shortly thereafter because it was a a very solid card and has proved it to be very popular in EDH. It's in um thirty-three thousand decks, so not something to um you know, that's that's significant, uh but it is seeing back to back reprintings, which has really hurt the spec. And so I think everyone was kinda like, oh well this is dead now. And I think the opposite is true, where you look at the price of even just the basic version and they're starting to climb. Um, I've been selling some on my TCG Direct site for about $7 recently, which made me say, hey, what is going on here? Um, And so when I was looking around, the Time Spiral Remastered, like many of the Time Spiral Spiral Remastered foils, are getting, again, down to lower supply despite the reprintings, uh, several reprintings. So the Time Spiral Remastered has... About 25 copies still in stock. They're starting to climb slowly, but um, on a gradual uphill climb. And so I have this going from 18 to 36, doubling over the next 18 months. You know, I think after getting hit twice, hopefully this is off Watsy's radar for at least a foil reprint. You never know with them. Sometimes they like to grind things into the ground, but it seemed to me with the reprints being back to back so close, both in foil that it was really a error and oversight, not an intentional thing. And so I'm hopeful that there won't be any more foil reprints, that this will have time to grow. And again, it will double from about 18 to 36 uh, because it's a good card. And on top of that, Brothers War will give it a lot of new artifact tools uh, to dump into the yard and to reanimate or to use in other ways.
1: So we we I was I had flagged this for discussion in the Discord not long ago. Um, I actually think the play here is not on the time Spiral remastered copies, but on the retro frame foils that were printed in MH2 that are in theory listed everywhere as Modern Horizons cards, but actually come in Modern Horizons 2 product in the CBs. Um, because they're not $18, you can get these for between 7 and $10, there's only 15 listings left on TCG Player, and I suspect it's going to chase the TSPR OBFs up the ramp, because they are essentially the same card, but these ones have the old uh, Wattsy uh, shooting star uh, on them, which I think is preferred to the ones without
0: I see 52 copies of Near Mint Foil for that.
1: Mm, Nope. 52 copies? 52 vendors. Uh, I'm only seeing 15 listings. I think you might be looking at Foil Etched. Okay. Because it's basically impossible (laughs) to look any of these things up. Right. For anybody who's listening that doesn't know the the hot tip for searching up all versions of a card on TCG Player... When you start typing it into the search bar up top on tcgplayer.com, you do not want to pick one of the auto-completes. What you want to do is start typing in Goblin Engineer, and then below it, you're going to see In Magic the Gathering. And you want to type the full name, but just the, just, just the name. And don't click Goblin Engineer Magic the Gathering underneath it. Because that will only give you regular versions. If you want to see all versions, you have to click the In Magic the Gathering and then that will show you every version that's been printed.
0: Now I'm comparing the two versions. So I think this is interesting. Um, I don't know if people want Modern Horizons 2 cards, or Modern Horizons 1 in Modern Horizons 2 cards as much as TimeSpot Remastered.
1: Well, I mean, they're both, the thing is, they're basically both the same frame. So they're interchangeable products for most players the tspr obfs are a little the the red is a little lighter yeah the yeah it's
0: more traditional the other
1: one is a richer red and has the star frankly i think when i looked at these both last week i was like you don't you just buy the cheapest of whichever of the two as far as i'm concerned because if you can get the tsprs at 18 but you can get these at eight the 18 has already been proven as a, a as a likely plateau so getting in at 8 gives you a pretty good run-up to the 18, which you know you can almost certainly hit. And then the foil etched for MH2 is very, very dark, so we know that's not really competition. And right. the original foils from Modern Horizons are in the uh, regular modern frames, and I don't think they carry much premium compared to these other two.
0: I'd be curious. I'm going to I'm gonna watch how this plays out. I, if I was buying, I would still buy the Times Spy Remastered. I think there's you prefer that a one yourself. Qu- well, I, I think it is a known quantity, and it, it goes to what we're gonna talk about a little later on on reserveless cards, but I think people have perceptions and they buy based on those perceptions. And I think a perception of Times Mile Remastered Old Border Foils is that they're re- unique, they're rare, they're special, all those things. Um, and we've seen the trend of all the other Times by Remastered cards. Not all of them, but many of the, the more well-played cards start to trend back upwards. And so I think there's a lot of proven things that go with the Time Spy Master that don't necessarily apply, at least to the, the Modern Horizons ones. It might, but it's not something I've looked at as closely, and I don't think there's as much trend lines to support it, per se. But I think that the argument's solid.
1: So I think the other what the other things people need to consider here is that Brothers War is a heavy artifact set, and there's a whole bunch of new toys for Goblin Engineer in there. We've been uh, theorizing in the Discord that Brea might might see a resurgence as kind of the de facto best four color artifact matters commander. Uh, in the same way that all the good dragons this year made Ur-Dragon come back on onto the radar, but that has yet to play out. There's also cards like Portal to Phyrexia that people are testing for modern, where Goblin Engineer lets you get it in the yard, and then you can use whatever methodology to pull it back out and do something really busted as, as early as possible. Um, so there are headwinds that help or, sorry, tailwinds that help Goblin Engineer move in the right direction, but no guarantees because again, we we had we did get <clears throat> the card and then a reprint and then another reprint uh, while people were caught holding original copies, <laughs> and and I have sold some of these to buy list at a profit that I bought cheap, but I've also, as you said, had to sell some copies that I bought early at a loss, so. I think the fancy versions you hold, the regular versions, because there's copies still yet to come in the coin flip deck that still hasn't been delivered from Secret Layer from year a year ago now, <laughs> um, more regulars in the form of a reprint are coming out of that, so stick to the premiums here.
0: The, the coin flip one is amazing, so I dumped um, some of the Commander's Plate of re- just regular versions. Which were very profitable. I think I bought them for ten, sold them for twenty, solid. And I was hoping to get thirty or forty eventually if they weren't reprinted as a mythic. And then they dumped them in this deck, so I, I got rid of all mine. <laughs> that was like
1: last winter or spring, <laughs> yeah. and here we are six months later. <laughs> no, it's like nine months or ten months later. Nine, yeah, it's, it's almost it's almost twelve actually. I think they sold that to us in but, either early December or late November last year. Um, and yeah, still have not I can't delivered. complain.
0: I have 20 coming, and as of right now, they're double-ups. Who knows what will happen once they hit the market. But
1: All right, so moving along here, my other pick is a Lathril card, because Lathril, despite being having nothing to do with most of the products that have come out this year, um, has just been stubbornly posting up in the top 10, top 5 commanders on EDHREC, and as of this week, despite everything that's been announced for Brothers War, is the top commander of the week with 386 decks versus Wilheltz, 376, Joda the Unifier at 374, Urdragon, 369, and Gearson at 368. So all very tight. Like, it's all, you know, in the same range. And Lathril Specs I've been a little tentative about because there aren't that many great targets. Um, But Elvish Archdruid draws my attention because it shows up in all sorts of different Elf decks, right? You don't need to be playing Lathril. If you're playing Elves in EDH, you're playing Elvish Archdruid. It's got a ton of printings, but it doesn't have any premium printings yet. There's no borderless or fancy secret layer version. That's for sure the primary risk that they're going to give this to us in an Elf-flavored secret layer. There's going to be Elves, for instance, in Lord of the Rings next summer. So they could do a secret layer alongside that and give us Elvish Archdruid, but using Lord of the Rings-themed art. That could easily happen. In the interim, however, there may be a gap to on the very original foils. So these are the Magic 2010 Elvish Archdruid foils. You can get them at around $10 to $12, depending on where you're buying them. Currently on TCG Player, there are exactly three copies left at that price. So if this is not a spec you can easily go deep on via that platform. You're going to have to scrounge around at other online stores, your local shop, eBay, what have you, maybe over in Europe. I bet you there's some copies lying around at seven or eight euros. Wouldn't surprise me at all. And, you know, you buy one or two for decks you're actually going to play, like Lathroll and then you have a couple more in your back pocket for down the road when it's just really hard to find the original foil of this, and one day you're going to wake up and it's going to be on one of our review lists in a year, year and a half, or 30 or
0: $40. I wish the 2010 art was more unique than the 2011-2013. Yep. Same thought. Click and throw. maybe they look different in person, but online they look pretty similar. Um, but they all, I mean, let's see how deep so the yeah the and the the uh, yeah they're all the near mint is pretty low regardless of the version
1: yeah and then you you can actually target the subsequent years and maybe do okay as well uh i don't think that the the original version here has tremendous draw but i've seen plenty of like instances over the last few years where multi reprint same art cards are still way more expensive in original printing there's always that small part of the market that wants the original foil especially if there's not a very fancy cool version that they can get instead which in this case there is not
0: right i definitely think if you're going for the 2010 foil it's worth going out of your way to make sure you're getting good solid near mint foils I wouldn't want to be hell holding a light play version of it. I think having the near mint. You want the person that wants this wants like the old version, nearly flawless, beautiful, nearly flawless, because that's what they they value. Otherwise, they'd buy the light play 2013 for seven dollars and not care about it. Yeah. So that's yeah. I would definitely yeah near mint only and yeah only the 2010 version.
1: For the sure. only other point I have about this is the inclusion rate is astronomical. It's like 98 percent of Lateral decks. So, oh, I believe it. So yeah. it's not just like that a lot of decks run Snapcaster Mage if they care about spells. No, it's basically every elf deck runs Elvish Arch Druid. So. Yeah, and, same, and also you have the competitive edge too, which is less
0: for foils, but this is one of the cards I believe that sees play in all of the... Um,
1: Certainly in Pioneer. All else. of the
0: Pioneer versions, and uh, I'm not sure about
1: beyond that, but definitely the Pioneer versions see that. All right, so you, you've got a special one here for us.
0: Yeah, so as everyone knows, I do a lot of MTGO trading, and one of the things I've actually never done despite that is do redemptions of sets, Uh, but Dominary United really presents a unique opportunity between um, there's always a gap between the value of an online set, so when you have uh, all the cards digitally, you have every single one, a copy of every single card in a set, you can turn it in to a physical copy of those cards for uh, a fee, and so every time there's a gap between the online value and the paper value, because there's only, you know, people want to be able to make some money if they're redeeming a set typically. Uh, And so right now there's a pretty good gap. So right now it costs you roughly $145 us to redeem a set. Uh, So that includes buying all of the versions of the cards uh, on magic online and then paying the $45 fee to uh, export them and get them shipped to you. The, the, TCG direct price for selling those same cards that you're getting is about 210 only for the three dollars and up cards after um, three dollars and up cards. After fees and shipping, if you're doing TCG direct which is what I do, you basically would net around twenty dollars per set. Uh, plus have a little bit of you know uncommons and commons and maybe some inexpensive rares that I'm not including here uh, as an added bonus. And so personally, what I'm planning to do is redeem about a dozen of these sets, uh, get them in, send them off to TCG and, and liquidate anything that I don't want to keep as a long term spec. Uh, pay for the service, have probably twenty or thirty card dollars worth of specs left over. Let those grow and then sell them later for a profit. And so it's one of those things where this is kind of a uh short term play, it's about two months between, you know, getting these online, redeeming them, getting them shipped to you, and then selling them. But I think you can flip a set for basically twenty dollars profit if you know what you're doing.
1: Are we talking about non foil or foil sets? Uh non foil. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh right. And so you think this hinges on having access to direct so you can get top dollar for your sales?
0: So a uh, non-direct, the price was about 180. So it's still positive EV. But once you go through the work of selling and you're paying the shipping costs and the fees, you're probably breaking relatively even. Um, so it depends. I mean,
1: better for a direct. It, it depends
0: seller. on what your setup is. It's better for a direct first seller. Uh, the the rare thing about Dominion United, which makes this better than most redemptions, is that it's such a top heavy set. Uh, with Shieldred soaking up such a huge amount of EV, Leyline's Binding and a few others taking up quite a bit, and Liliana taking up quite a bit more, you would only have to sell a few cards to really get close to to back to parity in value. So it's a lower risk redemption play than some of the other sets where, you know, EVs spread all around and it could just collapse in the next two months before you get your cards. Here, I think, if
1: anything, Shieldred goes up over that time period, not down. Fair enough. All right, we will jump on over to our weekly topic. We're going to delve into the, the premise that has been kicking around on social media pretty much since 30th Anniversary Edition was announced, which was that the presence of the 30th Anniversary singles and what it may or may not sing, signal to the market about Wizards' willingness to reprint reserve list cards could be, question mark, spooking the market as pertains to other reserve list cards. So primarily we're talking about things like uh, revised dual lands, which, you know, compared to Elf and Beta's print run, the revised print run was very large. And there are quite a lot of dual lands hanging around, and a lot of them have been hoarded by vendors over the years, especially in some key periods where there have been run-ups in their pricing, and vendors have made uh, big money. Uh, having dual lands in stock in quantity at the right time and then selling them into very busy, you know, legacy or vintage weekends at specific tournaments and so forth. There was a lot of export of those cards over to Japan because the distribution overseas of early magic product was much, much uh, more limited than it was in North America. And, you know, so this has been a big part of the MTG finance scene for a long time. And yet now here we are at a potential inflection point where it does seem like, uh, you know, somebody had flagged on Twitter that they were down 10% or something, uh, and there was YouTube videos being made, like, suggesting that the sky is falling on reserve list. I think off the top, my response to all that is pretty simple to say, and then requires a fair degree of nuance to explore in full. I think there's a lot more going on than than just 30th anniversary. And if I'm going to put the bullet points on the table, I would start with the collapse of the crypto market. The COVID generated plus war in Ukraine generated global economic problems that are really at the root probably more about the ever-expanding money supply than they are about either of those two things in the long term and what that has done to the pursuit of collectibles as investment vehicles this year versus the year before collectibles market on the whole was absolutely crazy red hot during lockdowns and coming out of lockdown periods for COVID. So late 2020 into pretty much all the way through 2021, especially on social media, especially on YouTube, you had your Logan Paul's opening million dollar booster boxes of Pokemon and what have you constant, constant Twitch streams and other streams, you know, whatnot and what have you of collectibles product being opened. You have the sports card market absolutely exploding You have magic doing very well. You have comics doing very well. You have the video game market getting red, red, red hot and overheating kind of across the board in collectibles as crypto was peaking. Because a lot of this coincides with Bitcoin hitting an all time high of 70,000 and then collapsing down under 20,000 earlier this year. So you've got all of that kind of economic, macroeconomic background creating a lot of noise over top of the reserve list and high-end Magic market. And it's worth pointing out that in the grand scheme of things in collectibles, even though Magic is approaching being a billion-dollar brand, it's still a small fish in a big pond compared to things like Pokemon or sports cards uh, or the video game industry, for that matter. Have you picked up on anything yourself in terms of, like, noticing trend lines, in terms of... People feeling seeming a little more desperate in various platforms to unload reserve list. So I have not.
0: So I think a lot of people on Twitter see something and they want they want to emphasize the narrative that <clears throat> reserve list is going down and burning for a variety of reasons. One is that they hate the reserve list. They passionately dislike what it stands for, and they revel in the idea of it uh, crashing and burning and everyone that invested into. "Quote unquote," like the you know the scheme of the reserve list or the man or you know whatever is getting burned as a result. I think that is something that people want to promote, and I think when you look into the data, at least currently, who knows where we'll be in a year? But Volcanic Island Reserve List, uh, third edition, right now is being bought at Card Kingdom for five hundred and thirty-five cash, seven hundred credit, and they're asking for fifty copies. That is not the sign of something that is just absolutely crashing. And some of these people are putting out YouTube videos saying, you know, dual lands are down 50%. But they're not. The data shows that they're absolutely not. And maybe they're down, you know, 10%, and they're down a little bit even further from the the previous crazy highs uh, that have nothing to do with the 30th edition set. And so I think reserve, reserve list prices will ebb and flow, but I do think, I will say a counterpoint to that, is that the proxy acceptance, I do think, changed from magic 30 i think that there's i even heard this from a buddy of mine who's kind of like well they're gonna do it i'm gonna do it and i think (laughs) that is to a point right because and and i know saffron allens talked about this quite a bit and some others and i think there's a lot of truth to it until there isn't right so people want what they can't have and i think that there's going to be a a, no matter what happens there's going to be a good number of people who always want real reserve list cards just like you want art just like you want bags things like that and once they have the capital to do it they there's going to be a certain portion of people that are willing to do it at a high cost and that will always float the market on top of the legacy demand which is you know small but mighty that also you know creates a national floor on a lot of these dual list cards and dual lands in particular
1: I mean, I've been on record pretty much since the day they announced it that most of the hot takes on 30th anniversary are just utterly off base, like just terrible analysis, both from an economic perspective and even from a gaming, you know, collectible slash community perspective. That the the perspective the the perspective that these things are quote unquote proxies is just wrong. They're not. A proxy is a card unofficial card for instance something produced by the proxy guy on his printer at home that he sells online as a intentional uh not a not a fraudulent recreation of an existing magic card but a clearly not magic card that will stand in for a magic card that is not what these are these are magic cards officially produced by wizards of the coast owned by hasbro That are being released under the specific reference to the original sets printed and are clearly intended for play. And people say, but you can't play them in tournaments. You can't play them in tournaments nobody plays anymore. There is no legacy community. Or more accurately, the same people have been playing legacy for 10, 15 years and that community is not growing in any meaningful way because it is both seriously capped by price and tends to appeal and be, be bought in on by people that are nostalgic to an early period of the game that a lot of newer players were not present for and will never feel that nostalgia for. And so people need to see these for what they are. They are a, co- a very low supply collectible. Now, that doesn't mean they're good value. The value argument is entirely reasonable to say, you know, you chose to price these Wizards of the Coast at $1,000 per four packs. $250 packs is the craziest packs you've ever had. The discussion about how accessible those packs are and that impact on the community, etc. if I want to have fun, but I can't afford it, that feels bad. That's legit, totally legit but the idea that the cards are fake or the same as something you would create in your own home or buy from, you know, a a counterfeit artist in China is just ridiculous. They're it's not even it's night and day different. It's not the same at all. It's this it's much closer to when in the comics industry for instance, they reprint Superman number 1, like Action Comics 37 or whatever it is. Um the original first appearance of Superman from almost a hundred years ago. They're not presenting it. uh, Because it's not a playable utility item where there's a tournament legality issue, it would just never even be a thing in other hobbies that, that they would choose to do that. It would be a cool thing. Hey, cool, they're reprinting action comics. Now, if they do it all the time, it drags down the value of those reprints because they're doing it too frequently. But if they do those things infrequently then they can appreciate and value in their own right, at a much lower level than the originals. But they, they can still be a respected collectible because the originals might be hundreds of thousands of dollars and totally inaccessible to the market, but maybe you want to hold a copy and flip through it and kind of get a sense of what it was like 100 years ago. So there is nostalgic is that- and collectible value to this set, without a doubt. And if you think otherwise, you're just wrong. People were buying these cards and buying these packs and and opening them for content all the way through the first weekend they were available. Now, again, that is neither here nor there as to whether this will in fact sell out. A lot of that depends on how greedy Wizards got. If they printed too much of it and they have to backdoor a bunch of it and it doesn't sell out on on the web sale then, yeah, they're going to have even more egg on their face. But as we've talked about before, we, we suspect they're going to manipulate that situation and make it sell out and then backdoor whatever they need to and destroy whatever they need to to keep the narrative in the right direction. So I think it does have an impact on the perception that the market has of the safety of reserve list. And I definitely have noticed some panic selling. Like I've definitely seen some people that seem to be unloading things that it looked like had this not happened, they would have been happy to hold and they're safe or whatever. But they kind of look at the graph for the last 10 years and they're like, I'm so far up. You know, like I bought these in 2005. I've got a full set of 20 revised duels. I could buy a car. So... And maybe that guy is 54 and maybe he's had COVID three times this year. Maybe his heart doesn't feel so good. And maybe he's thinking, this is just the right time for me to cash out. And the 30th anniversary announcement and what it could imply about wizards using that as a crack in the door to push into further reprints of the reserve list, you know, pushes that person over the edge. Now, to what yeah. degree that those car, you know, and I, and I think that, I think it's pretty clear that the impact on, say, a revised duel versus an alpha duel is also night and day. There's just so few of the alpha and betas. No, even if you told us tomorrow, listen, in March, we're printing duels. We're just printing them with normal backs. And the packs are whatever ridiculous number it would be. Alpha and beta duels are not going to suffer from that. They are still the original ridiculously rare collectible revised duels might especially if the new ones had awesome art and a good frame right like they, they might just end up being aesthetically preferable
0: yeah the white frames are brutal
1: well <laughs> and, and and the art's not very good like the the art on most of those lands is pretty bad and people are, like are very nostalgic for that like concentric boxes design but taking away my nostalgia for it and just looking at it as a, at it as a designer it's not good design. Like <laughs> it doesn't make sense to go back to. It's not like we're we haven't lost something in updating that te- those templates. There's a reason. F- addition like subsequent graphic designers inside Wizards made choices they made because they were cleaning up template bad templates. So I very much believe that the the cheapest versions of reserve list cards have an interesting tension with these 30th anniversary cards because, I've already said on cast, aesthetically, I would prefer to to play the updated, you know, minty out-of-the-pack, old border, volcanic island, black border in my EDH deck than I would a white border revised. And from the perspective of an EDH group, they... It doesn't matter what the card back is, guys. We all play in sleeves. So unless you're playing with a judge looking over your shoulder, who gives a shit? And it's not a proxy. It's an official collectible from Wizards of the Coast. I'm going to table that in an EDH game the same way I would an um, artist proof, which has no card back. Backs on those are white, or they have a sketch on the back. I play those in EDH all the time. No one's ever going to complain about that. <laughs> they they yeah. They're cool and expensive. So it's not the same as a fake card. It just isn't. They're different things entirely. Right. So I, I think both
0: can be true. I think the the idea that it's a collectible and that it's legitimate is real and is represented by the fact that it, even the, the things that have been already cracked are worth a lot of money. And the packs have been worth a lot of money when they were given out at Las Vegas. But I also think it's true that people can take things and intrinsically like think about them in a different way regardless of whether that represents the truth right and so i think somebody who because you're really tabling a card with the fancy art not for other people to see it but because you want to show it to them so if if your motivations internally are changing i think that can change what you do and what you're willing to buy and what you're willing to pay for so i think both can be true that these are obviously very high-end collectibles that they're they're not going to be cheap but that it can also, um, the perception that they are not or that they're not legitimate can drive people to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done, like order something from, you know, the insert proxy maker uh, and put it into their deck rather than trying to pony up for an actual duel or a collector's edition, for example.
1: Yeah. And I will say this, I think there's absolutely a chilling effect on people's willingness to invest in very high-end reserve list right now, or even to buy a full play set of revised duels for their EDH collection, because now they don't know what comes next. And right. we're also in an era where you don't need those duels. EDH 10 years ago, for sure you needed those duels, because there was five major land cycles not yet printed, no searchable triomes, no uh, Kaladesh fast lands, no, Battle Bond and later Commander Legends dual lands. So there are multiple very important dual land cycles that have filled that gap. You, I, I don't run real duels in almost any of my decks. I think I basically just have them in Atraxa and Brea. And that's just because those are the decks I stuffed full of like high end specs that did really well where I kept one copy. And like it's just like a, a symbolic thing of like a symbol of, you know, this worked out well. So now I get to have this like trophy deck that I that I, isn't even my favorite deck to play really, but I don't when I play decks without them I don't miss them in the slightest. It's not doesn't actually hurt you in EDH because what really matters in EDH is did you have Soul Ring in your opening hand or not? Because if if you have one of the ridiculous fast mana starts in EDH you're off to the races and if not you're you're drawing you know drawing drawing a card playing a land every three turns like a plebe. <laughs> and because of that, the duels just aren't, you know, getting held up on a specific color of mana is often not the issue, because in the interim, they've also played, printed a million mana rocks, including Arcane Signet, which always makes every color at two mana, and a whole bunch in a, in a million creatures that make mana, and a bunch of ways to draw cards if you're behind. And so it just doesn't matter that much anymore. And... If magic was very heavily built around legacy, you know, it was more, you know, a more widespread mainstream luxury hobby. It would be different. That you know, the, the the duels would probably be two or three thousand a piece by now if like five times more people played the game. But they don't. So and Wizards never supports it. You're not going to see a major tournament with legacy at the heart of it that Wizards backs anytime soon. It, it's probably maybe never. Right? Like they, they care about. Formats you can play in arena, they care about standard, they care about EDH. They sorta of care about modern because it's it's the way to keep the enfranchised players in enfranchised that used to more of more lean to legacy, but a lot of us have kind of stopped. Like I haven't updated a legacy deck in ages. I still update a modern deck, but I haven't played it since COVID. So it duels don't matter that I, much. I mean, I think duels
0: will slowly become the same thing as the other reserve list cards the the less pressure there is from these other factors the more they just become collectibles because right now they're they're played pieces of commander decks and i think the more and more options there are the more time goes on the more uncertainty there is they'll just become collectibles and then if it's a if it's a collectible driving the price more than being played then if there's an updated version that gets produced no one cares because they don't want the new version they want the old version because it's a collectible so that that's where I think... It was I think
1: the point I would make about revised duels in particular is that there are so many of those versus Alpha and Beta uh, and Unlimited that, oh, sure. that I think supply in fact exceeds demand and that they are propped up by people's willingness to invest in reserve lists prior to this change in policy from WOTC and so that they, I think, do have... The most to lose in the face of a normal backed dual land reprint, right? Like
0: yes, I if agree. they
1: give that us that in two years in reasonably priced packs. and I, and I don't mean five dollars. like you're not gonna get that. You might get fifty or hundred dollar packs, but you probably won't. you'll probably they'll probably be even more when they have regular packs. And if they do it, I think that will hurt the prospects, especially for, you know, LP, MP and worse versions of those because the collectible versions are the near mint ones, the gradable ones. I have zero interest in a MP scrub land if I can get a brand new, better art, better frame version from some future challenge to the reserve list. So I think there is risk there. I, I also think that that chilling effect applies to the power nine. Like, I I would bet if we surveyed a bunch of vendors, and I don't have this data hard in front of me. I just have anecdotal conversations with some people that hold this kind of inventory. There's a slowdown. Now, how much of that is the 30th announcement versus it was already an ongoing trend line from that earlier stuff we discussed, crypto collapse, general economic malaise, and COVID and what have you? Mm, It's tough to say. There's also just, like, people being back, trying, you know, a lot of people getting back to their regular lives, quote-unquote, and shifting money back away from collectibles and, and that kind of, like, impulse purchase stuff that you can consume in your home and back into cars, vacations, clothes, alcohol, the stuff that people stopped spending money on during the pan, the part of the pandemic where people were sticking close to home. Right. So, um the... I think the more rare, I mean, I think bottom line is the more rare it is, the more
0: resilient it is to any of these pressures because less and less copies go into the market at any given time, so there's never really the pressure downward, and so it is only. You know, I mean, these beta versions of power don't circulate very often. Like I would, so, I would
1: bet we're at the point where foil borderless Ragavan masterpiece series mana vault that kind of stuff is a lot easier for a vendor to move in the high end than buy you just because people have more faith in those things as EDH collectibles than they do in what's going to happen with reserveless cards moving forward
0: um i i think it's i i don't think i agree with that i mean i think it's easier to move a $200 card than it is a uh, or a hundred and fifty dollar card than a ten thousand dollar card for sure, but if if so, the things like Ragavan aren't forever. Okay, but let's say okay, right? so
1: let's say something like a foil borderless Ragavan and the equivalent revised MP Dual. Maybe that's a Scrubland or something. I'm not sure. I'd have to look up the prices. Um, yeah, you think the Scrubland outsells the Ragavan? Sells no. Well, that's what I'm saying. Uh, it's no, easier no. for the vendor to move. Yeah, of
0: course. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, uh, but it's not the same. If yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's anything that sees tournament play or sees comp- an EDH play is going to move better than any you know any of this high end collectible things. Collectibles don't move that often. That's well, but that's I guess but I guess
1: it. but p- there are people that would argue that the dual lands are absolutely EDH collectibles. It's it's the it's the best oh. dual land you can get get in the format. And my counter argument is, but it's replaceable.
0: Yeah, duels are the worst example of the reserve list, in my opinion, because there's been so many, re- which we talked about, right? Pressure from EDH prior to other duels, pressure from tournaments, pressure from all these different things that don't apply to to other sectors of the reserve list. So, you know, either you have things like Guy's Cradle that are just incredibly good and irreplaceable, or you have things like Power, which are the best things that they'll ever be, and are well known to be such, or you have things that are anonymous, and even though they're rare, that people just don't care. And duels are in that weird place where they have all these factors that have propped up the price, and a lot of them are going away. And so I just think they're the they're worst fading. example of of, re, of reserve list type right. cards because they're not the the price isn't predicated on it being reserve list. The price is predicated on scarcity mixed with use, and some of the use is fading. Along with some of the scarcity. See,
1: I would argue it's slightly different than that. I would say that you're right about the uh, use fading, but that it was net that reserve that revised duels in particular were never about scarcity. There's always been lots of revised duels around; they've just been hoarded. So I think it's about um, faith in the reserve list fading at the same time that utility of those lands is fading, and the supply is basically constant, and has always been high. Like I I remember having conversations with vendors as far back as 2013 where they were like, you know, talking about the trajectory of dual lands and them saying this has nothing to do with supply. In this case, it's more people's perception of the desirability of these as playing pieces and collectibles, which has led to vendors hoarding tons of them. Like there was many vendors that had tens of thousands of dollars tied up in duels you know people like Rudy and and Dan Bach and all sorts of folks right that are that are both known known and behind and in the shadows that that saw that as a really good opportunity at various points and then were proven right when two or three times in the last decade they've made big jumps up to a new plateau
0: In 2013, a dual land, a volcanic island, was a hundred dollars. It it's it's like talking about a world pre and post cell phones, right? Like I you I I know where you're going with it, but I'm saying well in 2013
1: 2013 is a good example because that's like around the time when legacy peaked.
0: Sure, but I'm saying of course people were buying it as specs. It was a hundred dollars. Now they're seven hundred dollars, and there's been several waves of booms and busts. And people along the whole way have said, "I made my money I'm getting out; they'll never be higher." And every time, I, I agree with you to an extent, but I'm saying every time that happens, the speculators that are holding huge amounts likely triage some of those out, you know, and they get dispersed. And at seven hundred dollars, I don't think people are hoarding volcanic saying. Oh, this is going to be 1500 next
1: no, year. No, no, no. Uh, I'm I, saying they got caught holding from hoarding at 350. Because they yeah. during le- what I what I would assert is that if you look at those big plateau jumps, they were not driven by jumps in demand from players. They were predicated on jumps in demand from vendors and or speculators that in depending on which jump you're talking about, we're either expecting big jumps because word was getting around that people were targeting them so everybody dogpiled, and or there are major legacy tournaments at the time coming up, like, you know, GP New Jersey 2012 or 13 or whatever it was, big, big, big event where I got my Black Lotus. So much power changed hands that weekend. Everybody was trying to get their stuff and the prices jumped and, and, and then stuck. That basically set the prices for the next couple of years on all of that stuff and then in a subsequent couple of bumps you know how it got up to whatever its peak was 700 plus i guess for for underground yeah in a thousand for a minute sure and and that was crypto driven like that it's it's well 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 established that collectibles that jumped like that was because crypto money was pouring in and part of that was that vendors realized they could do business outside the eye of the tax man if they did it in crypto. And so all of a sudden their margins got ridiculous. And yeah, I I don't think duels ever got driven up by major inflection points in player demand. I believe that they got driven up by major inflection points in cornering the market and or crypto driven speculator activity. And so I think that you know, we we may disagree on the fine points, but we agree from the top level perspective that things that used to make duels expensive are not gone, but they're fading. And I'm not scared to hold duels, but I also think it's funny that one of the big things that happens on social media is when something like that is detected, like that, that, they're, that something that has peaked too high overheated and fades, which is totally a natural economic process, when that occurs, people like to point fingers at imaginary speculators and go, "Ha ha 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 ha! Get fucked!" That's like you, true. like you bought it at nine hundred, thinking it was going to two thousand, and now you're screwed. And It's like, no, they didn't. They when it was at, <laughs> they bought it at five fifty to yeah. drive it to nine hundred, and then and then yeah, they've I, been I, flipping every couple months all the time. Like people don't get how this works. Those those vendors that have tons and tons of inventory. You know, you can pick up you know any number of different names that operate heavily on Facebook, for instance, or on the floors at GPs. Um, they're not sitting on big piles of cards waiting for things to happen. They're buying them at buy list pricing and then they're flipping them as fast as they humanly you know possibly can. If you look at you know Michael Caffrey from Tales of Adventure who was on the cast not long ago. He went out to Vegas and he was buying the 30th anniversary packs on the floor and flipping them on Twitter ten minutes later. He's not looking to sit in those yep. for three to six months and see what happens. He doesn't want to be in that. He doesn't ha- want to have to wait on that. He wants to get his money now and compound as quickly as he can. Move on to the next thing.
0: Yeah, it's the difference between a speculator and a business. Yeah. right. I mean, that's that's the fundamentals, and, and most of the people that are professionals in this area are doing it. They're buying low, selling high as quickly as possible, like you said, and, and moving on. And they don't care what the price is because they shouldn't. Ha- they'll move it quick enough where it doesn't matter. And obviously, you might get caught holding here and there, but
1: well, and I can certainly, yeah, I can I, say there are plenty of people in our Discord that own some duels. But the the, oh, yeah. the premise that some big percentage of our any of our holdings or inventory would be duels, I don't think that's even ever been a conversation in our Discord in three no. years.
0: Nope. And I, in, I, fact, people in fact, in fact, like Wheel of Wheel of Fortune, right? I mean, better example. Time Twister, ED. Time Twister, and yeah, Time and, Twister. and Wheel of Fortune
1: in terms of their role in EDH, and and that's right. notable because we've already seen an example that the 30th anniversary old border Time Twister of which there are less than a thousand in the world, by the way. I'm very certain there are less than a 1,000. Even if we're using your numbers and not mine for the print run. One of those that was opened this past weekend was up on one of the uh, lottery groups on Facebook and was going for multi-thousands of dollars. So anybody who thinks these are trash proxies worth te- worth a dollar is just... I'm sorry, you're completely out to lunch. It, it is the one of the rarest versions of an ex- a Power 9 card that you can play in EDH. <laughs> so mm-hmm, yeah. no you, you have to even if you just look at them as an artist proof like the dan fraser artist proofs for the secret layer uh foil signets were a topic of discussion in the discord today um there's not going to be that many of those and they're kind of the same thing it's a very fancy desirable version of a popular set of edh cards that aren't as powerful as Mox'es, but they're done by the same artist And they're not official cards. They don't have official card backs, but they're selling for $260 a set. So, I mean, obviously the market is there for EDH cards that are not tournament legal. So
0: one thing that I always think about for the context of anything like reserve list is how much money there is in the system. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, the, the idea of WOTC being as big as it is now 10 years ago would have been viewed as ridiculous right and similarly i mean i remember having a buddy in college who had the power nine and at that time everyone said how did you spend that much money on that that's ridiculous and now it would be (laughs) you know one hundredth of what you spend now and um i think one of the worst deals i ever made was i sold an alpha so i bought a collection and it was like 1200 bucks and one of the cards in it was an alpha sheep and dragon and it was early on in me buying and flipping collections and i wasn't even positive it was real you know i figured it was everything checked out but i'm like well, maybe he's scamming me i don't know and so i i kind of lowballed him i got it at a great price it was real i got it graded and i sold it for $600 and now that same shivan alpha dragon is $6000
1: yeah and, and and at the time you're thinking listen this and gets played I, I this gets played so nowhere happy. the nostalgia is not that intense for this card like obviously people remember playing it but you can't play it now it doesn't get played in anything so
0: take yeah, my money and and, run. and things like that always put things in perspective it's like you know there there is so much money out there it is incomprehensible how much money is out there i mean i work in politics and on this election there's gonna be billions of dollars spent and it sounds like a lot of money and then you compare it to just like the daily life things that people have to buy on a regular basis and it's less than you know what you spend on whatever insert random product that you don't even think about there is so much money out there that the sky is the limit on anything if people are interested and so i always try to keep that in mind when i think about reserve list when i think about magic when i think about specs what the, the limits of reality is what people make of them. And there is, there is an unbelievable amount of money out there. So when it comes to duels, are there negative pressures? Sure. Are there thousands of people who want to be able to show off they have legitimate duels and they people know it because they're white border? Absolutely. And
1: so there's always those competing pressures, and it's just a matter of which one wins out. I have two final points to make. One is we're in a, a period of heavy inflation, very heavy inflation. Some of the worst we've seen since either of us was born. And not just in the United States or Canada, but all over the place. And in periods of heavy inflation, it's actually less than crazy to be holding things like collectibles. Because hard goods, best examples, real estate typically, but it's also true of things like fine art in some cases and collectibles and other, you know in theory, gold, although that's a whole different discussion about how that hasn't been behaving as people expected. But something like a $1,000 card in an area of inflation could be turned into an $1,100 card. If you leave that money in cash, like you flee your duels and exit to cash and then hold cash in a little box, and then groceries and all your day-to-day expenses go up 13% over the next year, you've lost 13%. So... People that don't flee assuming that the collectible in question doesn't tank and stay tanked in excess of what they gain by holding it in a non-cash item could be better off. I mean, that's not a crazy strategy. I don't know if you've heard about this art timeshare yeah, company. Yeah,
0: I can't remember the name. There's a couple, I'm yeah, sure.
1: Yeah, there, there's a few yeah, different but... startups that, that basically yeah. are selling fine art in shares and there's also some of these in the collectibles world as well that we've analyzed on cast in the past and their big pitch is that in the face of inflation you want to be holding these kinds of things because they will tend to track up instead of neutral or down so there's that but there's also what i think is the actual biggest risk to magic collectibles in general and i think that especially the reserve list ones that are predicated on nostalgia for 1990s magic, and that is that those people are going to age out, and that COVID may accelerate that process. There was a report I was looking at this week that was talking about how there are 500,000 people currently absent in the U.S. workforce. You can make whatever argument you want, almost all of that is attributable to COVID. The hospitals are overflowing this fall with little kids who have RSV and the flu and the common cold and a bunch of other bullshit that they shouldn't be having nearly as much of as often or as extreme. Evidence is absolutely stockpiled like piling up that letting people get COVID multiple times is an extremely bad idea for the economy. It's bad for growth, it's bad for productivity. It's uh bad in just about For quality of life, it's bad for longevity. We've got the average expected age of death dropping like a stone for the first time in a long time. And all of this adds up to guys like me who started playing, say, in high school or college when they were in their teens or early 20s. I'm 45 now. I started playing in 1994. If those people would normally exit the game In their 50s or 60s that may end up being accelerated by five or ten years due to global circumstances primarily COVID, but there are lots of other things going on we could be going through a major recession for the next 18 months that could drive people to sell off collections etc and the question becomes is the next generation of players coming up the ones that are in their say late 20s and early 30s heading towards peak income will their nostalgia be nearly strong enough to prop up The collectibles from the era they don't actually give a shit about. And the analog I would bake is to an earlier collectible. If we look at something like G.I. Joe in the toy world. G.I. Joe starts in the late 60s, early 70s as basically a boy, quote-unquote, version of Barbie dolls. They're trying to sell, like, 8-inch dolls or 9-inch dolls to boys in the same factories that they make the girls dolls and they're trying to figure out how to double their market that way. And so they come up with selling them big army dudes. They call them GI Joe's and that goes through a segment of like boom and bust. And then later in the eighties, they resurrect it with an eighties cartoon uh, series and sell a shit ton of four inch figures at the during the same era that transformers are huge and star wars figures of the same scale are huge. But if you talk, go to a toy show, show today and you talk to quote-unquote G.I. Joe fans, those people are, don't give hardly any fucks about original G.I. Joes because they did not grow up with those toys. The big, big boom in that game was—I mean, in that toy uh, was in the 80s. And so most of the action and most of Hasbro's interest in producing for those people— is in producing in the scale the type of collectible that is nostalgic for the biggest segment of the market. And I'm worried that if you compare, if you, you know, take that premise and project it onto the future of magic, that, you know, legacy, vintage, old school, 90s era magic is a, has a clock on it. That this is a 5 to 10 years, probably safe, but 15 to 20 probably isn't kind of thing. Now. The counter to that would be that Magic is headed to be a billion dollar brand. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and so that even if the people that were actually there for the foundations of the game start to fade out of the hobby or you know age out of it for whatever reason or die, maybe they'll be replaced by an even smaller sliver of the player base that still cares or can afford the original collectibles, but the base has grown enough that it makes up for it. Now the problem with that is, Hasbro's marketing and product design mix over the last few years during the Booster Fund era does not suggest that that's where we're headed. Everything seems to indicate, if you're analyzing their product mix from a marketing and economics perspective, that they realized they couldn't grow the game much further in terms of total player base, and instead decided to mine the whales, to basically take guys like us who were already spending thousands on the game and try to double what we spent every year, which, admittedly, they have done very successfully. But that leaves me wondering whether the bottom of the pyramid is filling up wide enough behind us i think all
0: of that is fair uh, and definitely possible i just don't know right but I, I i think the one way you can be sure to be protected is to diversify your assets right um in in yeah it, i was just saying and, and i mean it seems elementary but maybe it's not is that both in terms of what you do in the magic space and what you do as a kind of investment i mean if you're doing if you're trading magic as a financial spec or as an investment that you're doing it as a part of a bigger portfolio because you don't know a if people are going to be playing magic or if for example you held i mean all reserve list items and you bought in at the peak and it crashed i mean you're, you're you're in a bad shape so by doing a little bit of everything specializing understanding what you're doing but doing a little bit of everything and having a broad base you insulate yourself at least partially from all these risks
1: yeah the the final point i'll make very quickly is that say i have a 500 hundred dollar duel but somebody is willing to trade me 10 foil extended art ledger shredders at 25 a piece so sorry 20 foil extended art ledger shredders at 25 a piece straight up it used to be that in those circumstances where you're trading standard legal cards for reserveless cards, there was a pretty hefty premium applied. But I we have seen even in our own Discord that there are vendors more willing to trade away power for $5 and $10 cards if they can get a sweet margin by selling on direct, right? And I am almost certain that no matter which $500 reserve list card you pick out of my collection, if you're willing to trade me 10 of those Ledger Shredders, I'm taking the Ledger Shredder side of that deal in a heartbeat.
0: Yeah, I I would like to say, short of having um, an emotional connection with certain Power 9 that I've bought over years, the the proper move is always to take the quickest, fastest money you can that's a reasonably decent play and move on power nine is not that. Um duels are not that. They are something they're like a blue chip, right? You're never going to make optimal returns on them, but you're not going to lose your shirt either. Maybe you get 3% gains a year, maybe you get 10, maybe you lose a little bit, but you're never going to have absent a crazy crypto rush which is not um something you can plan on. You're never going to get those intense gains. So I think the the general move for somebody that has limited liquidity is to always be moving your product getting in and out as quickly as possible um, for me generally I try to do every 18 months um, as a rule of thumb if it's longer than that that's something going wrong if it's earlier than that um, you know something unexpected went right but I, I don't try to flip things within you know a, a 30 day time window like some people but you know I do try to move my money at least every couple of years duels power aren't that so I, if i had the margins that would make it worthwhile i would agree uh, that i would trade into the cheaper things but i this actually just came up the other day because i posted a mock sapphire on the discord and somebody offered like 50 dollar cards for it and my response is well i could sell this for you know i think the buy list at ck was 5200 so i need 7k worth of stuff because you know I'm going to have to sell it I'm going to ship it I'm going to have to pay fees yeah which, which so is I consistent have have which is worthwhile. consistent
1: with how power has been trading hands in the discord lately yeah 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 and I, and I think that makes sense but I mean the the point I'm trying to make is that I'm much more excited to be holding premium EDH cards especially if they have modern spillover that are near lows and under a hundred dollars than I am about holding any blue chip, especially reserve lists and things like duels near a five hundred or plus. Like I have a box that's got about hundred k plus in blue chips in it, but only about I don't know, no more than three thousand of that is anything. Is is a is a non EDH spec, especially I mean, maybe there's fifteen hundred in duels in there or something. Um, that I've traded into along the way and just haven't put into decks or or trade it off but that will be the chunk of that box that I look at next in terms of trying to generate some kind of positive trade momentum because you know holding a white border duel doesn't seem like a ticket to success to me right so at this particular moment in time versus other options yeah I I agree I would sell duels a high
0: priority I would keep if I'm already in power nine, I would keep power nine and things like a guy cradle, which is obviously in a different league than most other things. And the rest, you know, I'd probably not care about one way or the other.
1: I think cradle and the others are lined up for similar releases and are probably were like the foil judge foil is Cradle seems pretty safe to me. the standard, cradle or if you're holding japanese cradles or something i think those are good to trade
0: i'd i'd be fine with it but i wouldn't be in a rush to do it yep. i guess would be my thought
1: yeah all right well that was pretty good chat i'm sure the pro traders and listeners will let us know what they think as well uh where can folks find you online oko you can find me online at oko
0: assassin on twitter and occasionally i do write for mtgprice.com how about you james
1: i posted an article on mtgprice.com this weekend Look at me go! Congratulations! Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a big deal these days. It used to be a very frequent occasion, and uh, I carved out—it's it's like that. It was five cheap EDH super staples that people can add to their collection. So check that out over on the site also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year you can get early access to this podcast fantastic articles by the best mtg finance minds in the business low-cost group buys and a super active discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money play in magic the gathering once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool
0: Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best and Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% on your order and to support this podcast. James, that brings us to the end of this episode of MTG Fast Finance. As
1: always, really appreciate the discussion. Thank you, Derek, and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.